This week is the beginning of our Summer in the Psalms series. We've been going to the Gospel of Luke for a while now, but every July what we like to do is um, take a little break and go through a few of the Psalms in the month of July. And the way we always do that, for those who may not know, is we will uh, read the Psalm, we'll preach the Psalm, and then we'll sing the Psalm. So when I'm done preaching, uh, our worship leaders are going to come back up and we're actually going to sing Psalm 1. Uh, because that's how they were originally written. They were written to be sung in a congregational worship setting just like this. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 1 today. We're going to start from the very beginning. Psalm chapter 1. I'll let y'all get there for a second. When you get there, I'm going to steal from Vaughn. When you get there, say, I got it. There we go. I just came up with that. All right. All right, well, let's read this together. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so in November of last year, something happened that you may not have even uh, noticed, may not have even been on your radar, and that was in November of 2022, the world population officially passed 8 billion people. There are 8 billion humans on planet Earth, 8 billion people across the globe. And among those 8 billion people, there are a plethora of different races, different ethnicities, different likes, dislikes, and personalities. And this doesn't even begin to include the billions of people that have lived before us since Adam and Eve were in the garden. And yet, despite the 8 billion and counting, despite the various ethnicities and the different personalities, Every single person on the planet is walking one of two paths. Every single person, all eight billion of them, are in walking one of two ways. And these two paths are illustrated for us in the classic 1981 film, Chariots of Fire. If you've seen the film, you know that Chariots of Fire is about the rise of two Scottish runners at the 1924 Olympics. And one of the runners is named Eric Liddell. And at one point in the film... Eric, who is a Christian, says that he runs to glorify God and that when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. The other runner in the film is named Harold Abrahams, and Harold is not a Christian. He has staked his identity in running. That is why he exists in his mind. He runs not to the glory of God, but to try and to prove to the world that he matters. He runs to glorify God himself. And there's a scene right before the race where he says, I quote, now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my own existence. And then he asks the question, but will I? You see, one pursues and delights in God. The other path pursues his own glory. And in Harold's situation, quite literally runs from God. This is a picture 
of what our psalm lays before us this morning. There are two ways of being. There are two paths to walk. There's the way of delighting in and being happy in God and His law and seeking to please Him. And then there's the path of running from God. And there's the path of trusting in your own self. And so if we look down at verse 1 in our psalm, you notice that the psalmist begins by describing how the blessed man or the happy man, that's what the word blessed means in this context, the man who is happy, how he does not live. You see, he doesn't just describe what the blessed man does. He wants us to compare and contrast these two ways of living, the way of the righteous or the blessed man and the way of the wicked. And so the blessed man does not do the three things mentioned in verse 1. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. And now notice the progression there. Walk, stand, sit. The psalmist seems to be communicating a slow progression, a slippery slope from the way of the wicked to the seat of scoffers. Because the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, he does not find himself ultimately with the scoffers. You see, it starts with the counsel. Someone walks with the wicked. They hear their counsel. They take their advice. And all of a sudden, they're standing with them in their way. They're joining with them in their sin, even if but for a moment. And eventually, they sit with them. They give themselves entirely to the lifestyle. The person's relationship with sin and sinners intensifies. And there are two groups mentioned here in verse 1. There's the wicked or the sinners, and then there's the scoffers. And these two groups are similar in that they both sin. That both groups are separated from God because of sin, and both reject His rule. However, it is the scoffers. It is that group who actively and intentionally scoff at or mock the very things of God. And it all starts with rejecting God's law. It all starts with rejecting God's truth and walking and living according to the ways, ways of the world. And from there, unless there is a turning away, unless there is repentance and faith, the person walking in the counsel of the wicked will find themselves in the seat of scoffers, living a life of God-hating, unrepentant sin. Perhaps we have seen this in the lives of people we love. They begin taking the advice of non-believers. They begin to be influenced by them. And for a while, they seem to be doing all right until one day that person may find the idea of a crucified Savior, repentance, sin, biblical marriage. They find those ideas laughable. And their journey started just with a whisper. started with walking in the counsel of the wicked. And so the psalmist is telling us the blessed man does not walk that path. The one who is happy in God does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, for he knows that the pathway to a lifestyle of unrepentant, God-mocking sin does not often begin with a loud bang. Right? It does not begin with a big warning sign that says, this is the path to destruction. But oftentimes it begins behind closed doors. It begins when we accept wicked counsel. It begins with the things we trick ourselves into thinking are not big deals or this is just a little sin, not what my next door neighbor does. Rarely does someone that have a major moral failure 
without first having taken seemingly little steps to get to that point. Commentator Ajith Fernando tells a story he heard in his youth of a Sunday school superintendent who was in prison. He was thrown in jail for committing a sexual crime. And when someone visited him in prison, the former Sunday school superintendent told the individual that at night, after his family had gone to bed and they were fast asleep, that he would read pornographic novels and materials. And his private sin went unrepentant. It went unconfessed. He began walking in the counsel of the wicked, and it led him to a life-destroying sin. You see, it doesn't just begin behind closed doors. It begins when we look up to the ungodly man or woman at work. We begin to admire them for their traits and their personalities that we know conflict with Scripture. It begins when we laugh at the sin of others or when we surround ourselves with media that makes sin sound appealing. It can begin when we distance ourselves from friends or a church who can hold us accountable and call us to repentance. We must guard against the slippery slope of sin. And the blessed man is considered blessed because he does not give an inch to the opportunity. And so that's what the blessed man does not do. But what separates him from the wicked? Well, the psalmist tells us down in verse 2. It says, The blessed man delights in the law, and meditates on it day and night. Now this verse needs some explanation because when the psalmist speaks of the law of God, he is not just referring to the commands of God. You see, the term for law or Torah contained up to this point in the history of Israel, when this psalm was written, books like Genesis, Exodus, Joshua. These books that detail for us the actions of God on behalf of His people. Those, those books that predict subtly and explicitly, the coming Messiah. These books that reveal to us the very character of God, His kindness and His goodness. The blessed man delights in the revelation of God and God's character. So to see the phrase law of God there just as His rules is to really not get the whole picture. It's kind of like I can remember in elementary school being told that Bible had an acronym. Some of you may have heard this, the basic instructions before leaving earth. Have y'all heard that acronym before? And the person who came up with that probably had good intentions, but that doesn't cover up what the Bible contains. The Bible is more than just a list of rules, a list of do's and do nots. It is a revelation of God himself. It is God revealing his heart for his people, his forgiving heart, his desire to show mercy and kindness to us. And so blessed is the person who meditates on and delights in His Word, delights ultimately in God. And so in the context of the psalm, notice this, the blessed man is considered blessed not by what he does, but by what he delights in. That's what separates the blessed man from the wicked. Not what he does, but what he delights in. That is the only thing in this psalm that separates the righteous from the wicked. A delight in God that, as we'll see in a little bit, leads to fruit, producing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's not a doing that separates the blessed man. It is what he delights in. It's what he loves. It's what he's passionate about. You see, many men and women have been led astray because they have assured themselves of their salvation or their blessedness because of their Christian mask or the front that they put on while ignoring the fact that there seems to be actual no heart change 
There's no repentance. There's no joy in the Lord. They think they're saved because they honor the Lord with their lips in one hour of their Sunday mornings. But their hearts are far from Him. They maybe look back on an emotional experience at a summer camp and consider themselves right with God. And meanwhile, there's no hint of repentance. There's no hint of pursuing obedience. There's no sense of delighting in who God is. In Matthew's parable of the soil, when Jesus tells us that parable, He says that they are the seed that falls on the rocky ground and the thorns. The mark of a Christian is not just mere obedience, but it is obedience that flows from a heart that delights in God. It is obedience that flows from a heart that has been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and transformed by His Spirit. If you read the Old Testament, you read all the time about the two groups of people. There were those who worshipped the Lord and were passionate about His glory and pursuing Him. And there was the other group who were worshipping both God and the pagan gods of the nations around them. They were going through the religious duties. They were going through the religious emotions. But there was no love for God. There was no sense of obedience to Him. And so God rejected their worship. The mark of a Christian, the thing that separates the blessed man from the wicked man, is a love of and delight in God. The righteous are made happy because of who God is and what He has done. The news of our forgiveness, our salvation, our eternal life, the eternal glory that awaits all who have trusted in Christ should cause songs of joy to spring up in our hearts. The reminder of God's character, His kindness, His compassion, His patience with sinners like us should make our hearts begin to flutter at times that God Himself would love us and save us. When we truly believe that message, there will be a sense of delight. The blessed man delights in God. And if you notice, that delight is connected to meditation. Verse 2 tells us, and on His law, that same law that He delights in, He meditates day and night. Now when we think of the word meditation, right? We think of someone sitting in a quiet area, maybe with some candles lit, sitting crisscross applesauce, maybe humming quietly to themselves. That's what we tend to think of with meditation. And so some of us may be surprised to see the word meditation in our Bibles because we associate it with those practices. We associate it with an emptying of the mind. That's why many of the Eastern religions do it. They try to empty their mind of all causes and concerns. But biblical meditation, the meditation that the blessed man participates in, is not an emptying of the mind, but rather it's a filling of the mind. He is filling his mind with the Word of God. He meditates not in a quiet room by himself, but in a quiet room with the Bible open. He ponders what the Word of the Lord says. And it doesn't just include that act of maybe quiet time, what we would call that today. But in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 7, Moses gives us a picture of what meditation on God's Word looks like. Moses tells the people that teaching the law to the next generation was to be an activity not just done in the living room or around the kitchen table, but rather it is an activity meant to be done in all of life situations. That everywhere we go, we are to be people of the book. We are to meditate and remember what God's Word has said. We keep it at the forefront of our lives and our minds as we go to the beach, right? Or whether we're in a meeting or we go to the ball field. The blessed man spends his days reflecting on who God is and what He has done. 
and he orders his life accordingly. He saves his life not around the counsel of the wicked, but around the written word of God. And on that word, he meditates and he delights in it. His mind is on the counsel of God, not on the futile and vain counsel of mere mortals. Verse 3 tells us, The blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water, whose leaf and foliage never wither. In a word, they are evergreen. Right? Some of us may wish we had these kind of trees in our yards, trees that never withered and died. But that's what the psalmist says we are like if we plant ourselves by the word of God, if we delight in his written word. And this image of a tree yielding fruit by a river, if you know your Old Testament, invokes reminders of the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. All the trees are producing fruit. They're planted by streams of water. The psalmist says this is what the blessed man is like. He is like a tree, firmly planted, constantly being nourished by the Word of God. And it is the Word of God that equips us to produce fruit. Right? We hear this word a lot in the New Testament, producing the fruits consistent with salvation. Just like a fruit-bearing tree blesses those who take of its fruits, who take and reach and eat, the blessed man blesses those around him. Those who delight in God will be noticeable in their communities. See, just like it's noticeable when a light is turned on in a dark room, so it's noticeable when the one who delights in God, when someone who has followed Jesus Christ interacts with those around them. The blessed man blesses others. He delights in God's Word, and he goes forth, and he produces fruit. Now, when we read verses like this, we all have to admit, we begin to examine our hearts and realize a lack of delight. There seems to be a lack of delight in our hearts. And so we ask, how do we get to delight in God? How do I get to this place of rejoicing every day in the good news of my salvation? Well, first off, it starts with prayer. We ask that God would give us the ability to delight in Him. And it begins with being a man or a woman of the Word of God and meditating. Don't forget the connection there in verse 2 between delighting in the law and meditating on the law. Much like God walked through the garden with Adam and Eve, we walk and talk with God as we meditate upon, as we study, and as we memorize, and as we live by His Word. Right? When we open up our Bibles, God speaks to us. Right? I went to Gottwalls in Perry the other day. There are hundreds and hundreds of books in that store. But only one, if they sell a Bible, is God speaking to us. Only one book can produce joy by the power of the Holy Spirit within me. Only one reveals to me the very character and heart of God. And when we meditate upon His Word, when we live daily with the Word of God at the forefront of our lives, delight will spring up by the power of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin says that men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey Him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to His mercy. What he's saying there is we will never live delightfully for God until we remember constantly our need for mercy and God's willingness to give it. Zeal and delight begin with remembrance. It begins with focusing on how God has spoken. Jesus confirms this in John 15, 
11, Jesus says, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The joy of the disciples was rooted in Jesus speaking. Jesus' speaking leads to our joy. That as Christians, as people, when we read the words of God and we understand what God is like, joy will spring up. And so we pray and we meditate upon God's Word as we go through our lives. And we must confess that maybe our lack of delight in God is connected to a lack of meditation. And perhaps a lack of meditation upon the Word reflects not a lack of time, but a lack of interest. Maybe we have found ourselves bored with God, going through the motions. And there is nothing more dangerous to an active, fruitful Christian life than boredom and finding yourself just going through those religious motions. It's dangerous to find ourselves more enthralled and awed by the things of this world and the gods of our culture than we are the realities and the wisdom of the holy and triune God. When we find ourselves in such a state, let us remember the mercy of God. and Let us run to Him, seeking His Word and seeking to delight in Him. And the, because the inevitable result of this meditation, the inevitable fruit of this delight is living the blessed life, blessing those around us, doing the things that God has called us to do, not begrudgingly, but with joy, as we remember who God is. Not only does the blessed man meditate and delight in God's law, not only does he produce fruit, but the psalmist also tells us that in everything he does, he prospers. Now again, we hear the word prosper in our Bibles and we kind of pause because we tend to think of the prosperity gospel. And then we look back on our lives and we remember all the things that we've gone through and how we have not prospered. And so we ask, what does he mean here when it says that the blessed man and all that he does will prosper? We must realize this verse does not teach that life will always be easy for the blessed man. Is David himself wrote these words, and when you study the life of David, you know he did not live an easy life. If we want to understand what this word means, we've got to look at uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 10. Because the same word used there for be wise is the same Hebrew word used for prosper. What the psalmist is telling us is that to prosper biblically is to live wisely. To prosper in a biblical sense is to live wisely according to the Word of God. And this isn't the only place we see this connection. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 7-8, through 8, God tells Joshua, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Now notice the connection here in Joshua 1 with Psalm 1. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success or may act wisely wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The psalmist is telling us to prosper is to live wisely according to the word of God. One of the fruits that delight and meditation bears is the fruit of living in accordance with how God has spoken, how God has called us to live. It does not mean that following the Word of God will bring success 
and happiness and easy circumstances every time. That is a prosperity gospel that we so often find in the bookshelves of our bookstores. And it's a heresy that has damned millions to hell because they are believing in a false gospel. Because we know that many a faithful saint has been put under hospice care. That many brave brothers and sisters in Christ have had to face the the flames and the swords of martyrdom and persecution. Psalm 1 can shift our view of what it means to be prosperous. It teaches us that the obedient person, the one who lives wisely according to the Word of God, is truly the prosperous person. And the obedient person will feel the blessedness that comes from delighting in the Word of God. The one who delights in God's law and lives according to it can sit in hospice care, can face the flames of martyrdom and persecution and cry out to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because God has saved me and God loves me. Psalm 1 shows us that the person who is dying for their faith, who has trusted in Christ, is better off than the young atheist bachelor sitting in his mansion. Because one is living wisely according to the Word of God, and the other one is not. The biblical view of success and prosperity is not the view of success that we have as Americans, right? The view of American success that we have is having a nice car with a nice house and well-behaved kids who go to a nice school and don't get into too much trouble. That's pretty much how we gauge success here in America. That's how we gauge whether we're prospering of not or not. For many of us, success means retiring early and buying a boat. And while those things are not necessarily bad, for the biblical authors, they have nothing to do with what the successful God-honoring life is like. One can be on the path of the wicked and still have the nice boat. One can be on the path of the wicked and still have the nice and well-dressed kids. What separates the blessed man from the wicked is that the blessed man lives wisely according to the word of God. He will do what the word of God says. He will be like a tree planted by a stream of water. However, as the psalm tells us in verse 4, the wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff. Now I had to Google what chaff is because I'm not a farmer nor the son of a farmer. Chaff, by agricultural standards, is worthless. It contributes and adds nothing. It is a dry, scaly, kind of protecting casing for the seeds. And so it cannot be digested by humans. We cannot eat it. And so when the farmers would go and they would gather their grain, they would intentionally remove the chaff. They would go through a process of making sure the chaff would not go with the crops. And the way this process worked was they would separate the chaff from the crop and then the chaff would just be thrown into the wind. It would be cast aside. They didn't even care where it landed as long as it wasn't with the crops. And so it can startle us that this is how God describes the way of the wicked. That while the blessed man is like a tree, firmly planted by the stream of water, bearing fruit, secure and safe. The wicked man is like chaff, being cast to the wind, being cast out from the presence of God's mercy and God's goodness. While the fruit-producing blessed man blesses those around him, the wicked man, the chaff, only lives for himself. 
And this can be hard for us to remember because we are constantly attacked by images of seemingly wicked people not being rejected, but celebrated. Right? We look, we turn on our TVs and we see the counsel of the wicked not being condemned, but promoted. We see the most powerful people in the world, those with the most money and the most success, also seeming to be the most wicked. They may be comfortably sitting in the seat of scoffer. This is what Psalm 1 is teaching us. The wicked right now may be comfortably sitting in the seat of scoffers, but on the day of judgment, they will not stand. They will be cast out. On the day of judgment, they will see the face of God, and they'll turn around, and they'll look for their good deeds, they'll look for their nice cars and their mansion, and it will be gone. And the only thing there will be them and God the God who has offered them salvation and grace and mercy. And the only thing that will matter is not their car, not the size of their house, not how well their kids behave, but did you trust in Christ? Did you repent of your sins and believe? And verse 5 tells us the wicked will not stand in that judgment, and nor will they stand in the congregation of the righteous. But then verse 6 tells us, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. And this knowing that the psalmist describes is not a mere awareness of their existence, right? God is omnipotent and omniscient. He knows everything about us down to how many hairs are on the top of our head. But the knowing described here in verse 6 is a knowing that God knows the way of the righteous in an affectionate way, that He delights in them. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the prodigal son story, and we saw how the father rejoices in his son coming home. That is how God um, views his people, those who have trusted in him and believed. He delights in them. And so in verse 5, we're introduced to this congregation of the righteous. And so now we have another kind of party to add to Psalm 1. We have the blessed man, we have the wicked, and now we have the congregation of the righteous. You see, in the original Hebrew, verse 1 of the blessed man is singular. The psalmist is pointing to a person who is a good example of being the blessed man. And in verse 5, the congregation of the righteous are those people who follow him. So the blessed man is the example. The congregation of the righteous are those who follow his example. Who follow him and not walking in the counsel of the wicked, but delighting in the law of of the Lord. So then the question for us naturally is, well, who is this blessed man? Who is a man who has perfectly never walked in the counsel of the wicked or sat in the way of sinners or excuse me, stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers? Who is that man? A man named Joseph Flax asked the same question. He was visiting Palestine in the early 20th century. And as he spoke on the first psalm, he asked this question. Who is this blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? Flack asked, was he Abraham, the father of the Jewish people? One man said, it can't be Abraham, for he had denied his wife and he lied about her. Right? So he, he walked in the counsel of the wicked. So Flack asked again, well, how about Moses? Could the blessed man of Psalm 1 be Moses who led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery? And someone stood up and said, well, it can't be Moses, he killed a man. He lost his temper. He smashed the Ten Commandments over the rock. And so Flack suggested, well, perhaps it's the author David. 
David himself wrote Psalm 1. It can't be David, for he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband. And so who could this man be? Who could the blessed man of Psalm 1 be? Finally, a Jewish man stood in the back and said, My brothers, I have a little book here. It is called the New Testament. I have been reading it. And if I could believe that book, if I could be sure that it is true, I would say that the man of the first psalm was Jesus of Nazareth. You see, the original readers of this first psalm would have understood that this is a call to delight in and meditate upon God in His Word. And that is how we are to read it as well, seeking to be like the blessed man. And yet they also would have read it expectantly, waiting for that blessed man to come who had never once walked in the counsel of the wicked. And that man is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the blessed man of Psalm 1. He has never once stood in the way of sinners. He has never sat in the seat of of scoffers, but his delight was perfectly in the law of the Lord. He perfectly obeyed the will of God the Father, even to death on a cross, as he stood in the place of unworthy sinners. Christ is the blessed and righteous man who died for those sitting in the seat of scoffers. When we read the crucifixion story, we read of the Roman soldiers mocking him, and yet Jesus stands there dying for the sins of of the world, and when he dies, one of the soldiers who had just been mocking him said, Surely this was the man, the Son of God. One of the thieves on the cross, if you've ever noticed, in one of the Gospels, it says that he was mocking Jesus, but by the end of his time on the cross, as he was dying, he came to realize that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And Jesus tells him, This man who was just scoffing him, who was mocking him, who was living a God hating, unrepentant life, but had repented. Jesus tells that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He dies for the wicked. He dies for the scoffers. And he he rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so now he sits not in the seat of scoffers, but he sits in the very throne room of heaven. And he will not stand in the way of sinners, but will one day stand in judgment of the entire world. And so the question for us then, as we finish up Psalm 1, Which way will we follow? There are two kinds of people in this world. The one who follows the way of the blessed man, the one who follows the way of the wicked. And just in case you think this is an Old Testament teaching, if you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount at the very end of Matthew 7, Jesus refers to two ways of living. The man who builds his house upon the rock and the man who builds his house on sand. It's possible that Jesus was referring to this psalm in his Sermon on the Mount. Will we build our lives in faith on the never-changing, life-giving rock of God's Word? Or will we build our lives on the sand of the ways of the wicked? That is a question we have to ask ourselves. Amidst our never-ending to-do list and the distractions of the world, we have to choose which way will we follow. Will we delight in the Lord? Will we understand His grace and mercy shown to sinners? Or will we mock and scoff at the way of the righteous. And there is no middle ground here. Notice the psalmist does not give a third way. Right? Years ago, my family and I, we took a trip to Niagara Falls, and we walked from the Canada side, which is like the good side, 
and we walked over the New York side, which is not so good. And at some point on the bridge, you can have one foot in Canada and one foot in the United States. You can be in two countries at once. There is nothing like that in the way of Jesus. We can't have one foot in the way of the blessed man and one foot in the way of the wicked. We have to choose who will we swear allegiance to? Who will we follow? Will we be considered at our judgment day righteous or wicked? Will it be made known in the throne room of God that we were planted like trees or will we be cast out like chaff? The gospel tells us that none of us are righteous, that all of us deserve to be cast out like chaff. We're born deserving to be cast out like chaff because of our sin nature. However, because of Jesus Christ, the true blessed man, all who repent of sins and trust in him will be counted righteous. Not because there's any righteousness within us, but because his righteousness is given to us as a gift. The message of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus takes our wickedness and is punished for it, and we receive his righteousness. The effect of faith and repentance is that the wicked are now counted blessed. That God now delights in those who turn to him and are saved. See, we're not saved by just following the do's and the do nots of the Bible. We're saved by repenting of our sin. We're saved by repenting of our inability to keep God's word. And we repent of that and we put our faith in Jesus. And he fills us with his Holy Spirit and he secures our eternal salvation. So that one day we will join the congregation of the righteous. That one day we will truly and perfectly rejoice and be happy in who God is. But until then, until our faith becomes sight, we pursue God through his word. We talk with the God who loves us through prayer. We prosper by living wisely according to his word. And we bless those around us, pointing our community and our world to the true blessed man, Jesus Christ.